Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 224 of Sexology Podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. I'm recording this at 5 p.m. on Friday. And I think today I recorded around seven episodes. Very excited about this upcoming series. We had so many great, wonderful guests that reached out and the people published books. So if you are interested to learn more about the newest finding in the realm of sexual wellness, make sure you're subscribing to the show wherever you're listening to it so you get it downloaded to your device because next few episodes will be very, very interesting, at least in my perspective. And I've been doing this for four years. Anyhow, welcome to our episode. I have some exciting news for you guys. As many of you guys know that one of the things I feel very passionate about is helping people to sexually reconnect, especially people in a long-term relationship. And I don't want anyone to have leftover sex. So I'm developing this course. It's called Bedroom Fizzle to Sizzle. It's going to be four weeks. And I announced that in my newsletter a few days ago, for a limited time for only this week, I will open it for a founding member. And the reason I'm opening it for short term is that I have some ideas about what I'll put in the course, but I want it to be exactly what you guys want it to be. So if you're signing up for a founding membership, first of all, you get more than 50% discount. Also, you have the opportunity to shape the course. So if you are curious about this and you want to break the cycle of sexual avoidance and frustration with your partner, or you want to have a more exciting sexual experiences, make sure you're checking out on how to sign up for the course in the show notes. Today, we're going to talk about some of the scientific studies that look into the relationship between using cannabis for sexual enhancement. This is something I hear a lot from my clients, and I've been on a lookout to find a guest so they can we can have this conversation from a perspective of someone that, that's a physician and that works with this clients. Well, I'm very proud that I connected with Dr. Jordan Tischler. Dr. Tischler is a physician. He is a cannabis specialist through his training in internal medicine and years of practice as an emergency physician. Dr. Tischler brings his knowledge, reason, and caring to patients here at Inhale MD and through his advocacy work at the local and national levels. Dr. Tischler graduated from both Harvard College and Harvard Medical School. In our interview, Dr. Tischler will tell us about his journey of how he transitioned from working at internal medicine department and with veterans to the practice that he has right now. And he will talk about some of the benefits, the kind of pros and cons of using cannabis for sexual enhancement. Anyhow, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jordan Tischler. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am honored and excited to have Dr. Jordan Tischler on our show. Dr. Tischler, welcome to our show. Ah, thank you. It's so nice to be here. 
I am very excited about this conversation. So I'm a psychologist, I'm a sex therapist, and I hear mixed reviews from my patients about incorporating cannabis in, in their sexual play, in their life. And I know that's your specialty. I know you're a physician, but that this is a specialty that you pursue. So tell us more about how did you get interested in this work? Well, I got into cannabis as a medicine because I was doing emergency medicine for the VA, as a matter of fact. And, you know, for years, I was seeing all these poor guys whose lives were really harmed by all these substances. And frankly, it was alcohol really is the number one substance. And then back in 2011, Massachusetts started talking about legalizing cannabis for medical use. And I sort of had one of those moments where I went, huh, you know, I've seen all these guys who've been so sick. Nobody's ever been sick from cannabis. So maybe it's not so bad, you know, and maybe if there's actually some data on how to use this for medicine, I should learn something about it. I guess that's curiosity. So I started reading the literature. And of course, you know, it was very fashionable to say things like, well, there's no science on this. That's complete hogwash. There are tens of thousands of studies on on cannabis. Now, not all of them are great, so I had to spend a lot of time, no pun intended, weeding through them. But after a few years of this, I came, became convinced that if you use it properly and you use it for the right problems, that it can be a very helpful medicine. And that led me to sort of forming my private practice, Inhale MD. And then as I got going on that, there was a group that was doing sort of the precursor to podcast, it was kind of online broadcast stuff. And um, they invited me to give a talk, cannabis and sexuality. I was like, great, what do I know about this? (laughs) So I ended up starting to read a lot about it. There was actually an article in the lay press that got me particularly interested in it, which talked a lot about sort of women hippies in California growing this stuff and sort of becoming very much aroused simply through the process of the horticulture because of the contact that they had with with the resin from the plant. And I found that very intriguing. So ultimately, I, I, I sort of dug in and got very interested in this. And then I started to see in my practice, people wouldn't come to me for their sexual problems. As you well know, people don't seek help for their for their sexual issues very well and very commonly, and certainly men least of all. But what was interesting is that people would come to me for whatever their other sort of more medical problems were, like back pain or anxiety or things like that. And they'd come back and they'd say, you know, not only is my back pain better, but doc, what's going on here? I'm having the best sex of my life. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, yep, nice side benefit. And so from there, you know, things have morphed into people actually seeking treatment for sexuality. Although, unfortunately, as you know, it's still the least, you know, sought problem. And I think, you know, the, the, the beauty of podcasts like yours is that this is an opportunity to get this into people's heads so that when things inevitably cr- crop up, because pe- that they do, right, that, that people go, oh, you know, I think I heard something about this before, and maybe I should talk to somebody. And, and maybe just getting that into their head through the podcast opens the door so that when it becomes relevant, then they can walk through. And that would, 
as far as I'm concerned, be a huge win. Absolutely. And it's interesting you were talking about your experience with VA. So the way my journey of becoming a psychologist started, I used to do research at VA. And then I started, I used to work at a methadone clinic doing therapy with people that kind of had trauma. And, you know, I came from this background of like, all drugs are bad. <laughs> and now I'm in a world of sexual health. And whenever I, and I think with sexual health, there are some medications, some substances that help people to have better sexual experiences. But I always hear that nagging voice in the back of my head saying that, like, are, are, am I promoting addiction? But you're right. I never had anyone saying that I had got addicted on cannabis, although I work on different levels of setting. It's funny. I, I hadn't really thought about it till you mentioned it, but I too spent some time working in a methadone clinic as a medical student. Yeah, there was definitely a very, very regimented all drugs are bad sort of thing. But at the end of the my experience there, I sort of came away with, you know, it's very clear to me that methadone is better than heroin. But is that really all we've got? You know, and, and then we've now developed Suboxone, which is extraordinarily helpful for some people. But in the ER, I've seen a lot of people who've had a lot of trouble with Suboxone. And so, you know, the reality here is that all medicines are double-edged swords. And if you don't wield the sword carefully, you're going to get cut. And I think that's true with cannabis also, although I think the blade is duller to really overextend the metaphor than it is, say, with, with opioids, right? I mean, we just know that you know, roughly one in four per people who use opioids are going to develop some sort of a, a dependence and a problem. The numbers in, for cannabis are much lower. They're sort of in the 7% range, which is about the same range we see when people drink coffee and whether or not they develop a dependence on coffee. So, you know, there's no question, and I've seen this in my clinic, that there are people who come in and either are already using a whole lot of cannabis or don't take it seriously, and, and they, their doses can really escalate and get out of control. And I think that, you know, the idea of cannabis use disorder as defined, loosely as defined by the DSM-5, because I think there's some issues with the way it's defined in the DSM, is a real thing. It's just not super prevalent. And when we start thinking about using this in a cautious manner as a medicine, I think that that risk becomes very low. And then when we have all this talk about legalization, like you guys have, I think that risk becomes higher, right? And so there's kind of a bit of a tension and a push-pull there. I would like to see a little bit more emphasis on, on the medical side so that we can get better benefit from this medicine and also not have this kind of DIY mentality that you should just kind of go down and talk to the bud tender and then and they'll tell you what to do because they're going to tell you to do a lot, right? They sit, that helps them sell stuff. And, and furthermore, a lot of them come from a background of, you know, yes, I use a lot of cannabis myself kind of thing. And that informs their experience and often that's in excess of what would be helpful medically and possibly in excess of what's helpful sort of just as a general health and safety thing. So I think we have some growing pains around that. And, and that di it's really the only substance I can think of that has both legitimate medical and recreational use. And so from a policy point of view, that's challenging. And I think we've got a lot of sorting out to do there, but it's really impressively helpful 
from a medical point of view, and especially with the sexuality piece of it. And I'm glad that you talked about the percentage. And of course, there are a group of people that develop de- dependency on number of different things, and cannabis could be one of that. But now I remember that one of the saying that they had and one of the partial hospitalization program I had where we were working on, we were saying it's a gateway drug for other drugs. Is that true? No. (laughs) Um, That is to say, I think any substance in the wrong person can lead them astray. But it isn't the substance itself. It's really the attempt to self-medicate for whatever the underlying psychological condition is. But, you know, the con- the whole concept of cannabis as a gateway is a fiction that was was invented in the early 1980s as propaganda. But every study that has actually looked at this has found it not to be the case. And that if any med- any drug has been shown to be a gateway, it's alcohol, number one, and, and tobacco, number two, both of which obviously are freely available. And and cannabis really just doesn't factor in as a causative agent of going on to harder drugs. I think that there are psychological conditions and, and social circumstances that lead people, because they're basically miserable, to experiment with things that then can become problematic. I mean, certainly we see that in, in the heroin you know, maybe they start off with uh, with pharmaceuticals prescribed or not prescribed, and then, you know, it becomes cheaper to go on to injectables and stuff like that. And that's a bad progression. Did they smoke cannabis before they got into heroin? Maybe. But is that causative or is that just a step along their sort of self-treatment of this underlying intrapsychic pain that, that they need to address? I agree with you. And I think we both having kind of a, a addiction background, I can have this conversation for hours <laughs> because our thinking are aligned. But I know many of our listeners, they're curious to hear more about the sexual experiences. So please share with us the different aspects of like sexual experience that get impacted, whether it's enhanced or diminished by, by the cannabis use. Sure. You know, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that when we think about sort of the the way sexuality works, you know, there are we can sort of define it as having certain phases. And this this goes, you know, back to the to the 60s. And so we've got this idea of desire, which is really libido. And then we've got this next stage, which is arousal, which in women involves relaxation of the vaginal muscles and lubrication and men get erections and that sort of thing. And then you kind of go into this, the, the next phase, which leads to orgasm, hopefully, and the following stage, which is sort of relaxation and intimacy, right? That's a sort of satisfaction. That's the word I'm looking for. When we think about medications that are available to intervene when any of these things kind of aren't working, we, we got almost nothing, right? What do we have? Well, we have a small handful of medicines that help men get erections. And that's it. That's what we got, right? I mean, we've got nothing that deals with libido. We've got nothing that deals with arousal. We've got nothing that do- deals with orgasm or satisfaction except erections in men. And it turns out that erectile dysfunction in men is a relatively common problem, but in the list of problems, it's third or fourth. And it turns out that while men are loath to discuss it, low libido is still the most common sexual problem. So we've got a 
wide range of issues for both men and women that we got almost nothing to do, at least on a pharmacological level. Turns out cannabis can intervene on all of those fronts and equally well for both men and women, although there are some caveats, particularly for, for men, because it's dose dependent. So there's no question that a little bit can be helpful and a lot can start to get in the way. And for women, I think largely because women are, how do I put this politely, less required to be actively and mechanically involved, um, which isn't to say that they might not be, but they're not required, then they can kind of get away with being more stoned, right? Whereas with men, it turns out that getting and maintaining an erection is a very active process. And so if you are very stoned and sort of out to lunch, things tend to wilt. And in fact, this is this knowledge has been with us as folklore for long enough that there's an expression stoner boner, which really just goes to the idea that, you know, if you're really intoxicated, it's very hard to actually be present and engaged in. So that can be a problem. But low doses can be very stimulating. And what is a low dose? Well, that varies a little bit from person to person, but not quite as much as sort of you would expect if you listen to sort of the popular press. Somewhere between five milligrams and 15 milligrams with an average of 10 milligrams is kind of a low dose where most of this stuff seems to work well for most people. And one of the things that's also really important about cannabis is that it behaves differently depending on how we take it, right? So probably people out there are aware that, you know, if you smoke it or otherwise inhale it, it's relatively rapid onset. It doesn't last super long. But if you take an edible, it's, you know, you just never know exactly when it's going to hit. And then when it does work, it works for longer. So actually, those edibles turn out to be really good for treatment of things like chronic pain, but not so good if you want to have a sexual encounter, particularly if you're expecting to have a paired or coupled encounter where you want, you know, everybody kind of revved up and on the same page at the same time, then those edibles can be really hard to manage. And there's a lot of discussion out there about, you know, sexy, romantic infused dinners and all that sort of thing. And I applaud the idea of making sexy dinners, but I would suggest that you make just normal food, sexy dinners, and then you use a flour vaporizer. So we're not smoking, but that has that same rapid onset and you can work the vaporizer into foreplay so it can be sexy itself. And but because of the relatively rapid onset, that gets everybody on the same page at the same time. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting the way I, I hear about it. It's mostly from my female clients. So I had clients that ne they never experienced orgasm, and they have the first orgasm after their their like the first time that you are they're under influence or taking they've taken cannabis. Or uh, I had clients that uh, they told me that they experienced mul multiple orgasm for the first time. So I think that's interesting. But sometimes my female client tell me that it's really hard to focus. So although they're enjoying the experience, they're not able to experience orgasm. Well, you know, again, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot in the sexuality world is that orgasm isn't necessarily the goal and that having an enjoyable interaction is, is, is really what we should be focused on, which is not to write off orgasms, but really just to sort of put them in proper perspective. 
But that being said, I think what your clients are describing to you is likely very dose dependent. And so rather than saying, oh, isn't it too bad you couldn't have an orgasm? I think we can take a cue from the fact that what they're saying is that I was sort of too far gone. And if we reel the dose back a bit, then maybe we can find that sweet spot. And so if she took, you know, two or three puffs on the vaporizer, then maybe we should stop at one and see if that doesn't just do enough to kind of get the ball rolling without going over the line. What is this? Like if someone is inhaling it, what is the window of the time that it's supposed to for them to see the effect? It should kick in in sort of 10 to 15 minutes, whereas the edibles may be 90 minutes or 60 minutes or somewhere in there, you know, nebulously. But really, I think with inhalation, you're you're pretty confident that you've got sort of that 10 to 15 minute window um, right. and, and that should be good. Well, it's interesting that you said there are tons of studies out there. I didn't know much about the studies around cannabis and sexual enhancement and sexuality after I I, I shared with you that I read your article and then I did more research about it. And you're right that all research are not created equally. So (laughs) there are some of the stronger ones that kind of like that show there is a connection there. You know, that's a great question. And unfortunately, right off the top of my head, I can't quote by name, but there is one study that I do like to talk about. It was done some years ago by a group in in London. And what they did was they designed a device that measured vaginal wetness and contraction. Not surprisingly, this device looked a lot like a dildo. And they found a bunch of intrepid women who were willing to to be part of this experiment. And so what they would do is they would insert this device and they would show women some films. And so they started with a newsreel, which, as you can imagine, was dull and didn't really do anything for anybody. And then they would show women some porn. And, you know, for some percentage of the women, that was interesting. But for many of them, it didn't do a lot. And then the second arm of the study was that they gave cannabis. Now, oddly enough, they gave IV cannabis, which, you know, I don't know, that's what they did. And then they showed the same clips. So the newsreel still didn't do anything, but suddenly the pornography was much more interesting. And and so, you know, my my one liner is proving that cannabis can make even bad porn interesting. Um, (laughs) But that's the kind of that's the kind of study where we can say, you know, we've got a control arm so we can say that it's not just the film. It's the cannabis plus the film that's making a difference here. That addresses arousal. It doesn't really address libido. That's sort of obviously a separate issue. And in many instances, that's a larger issue for for women and men. The evidence for uh, for libido is much more complicated and in large measure because it's very hard to measure that. So in that area, we have the evidence we have is much more anecdotal, which you know always makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I like to see good studies. And we're working on that. I'm actually involved in a, in a developing research project at the moment that's going to look very specifically at the use of cannabis to treat women who have a secondary orgasmic disorder. 
That's fascinating. And you're right that it's always specifically, again, might sound reductionistic, but I think for women, sexual desire, I think it's more complex. And I don't think it's not necessarily one size fits all, but it's what, but it's my experience that sometimes is the kind of like distraction and not being attuned to your body and not kind of really leading into your sensation gets, can get in the way of experiencing desire. And I can imagine that the cannabis can be a tool that people can use as, as a way to to experience more embodiment. I think that's absolutely right. For, for a couple of reasons. One is the sort of obvious physiologic, which is that it has a tendency to sort of pull you into the moment and make you focus on sensation. But I think the other thing is just that there's also a mindfulness practice, right? Which is, okay, I'm going to set out to have this kind of interaction either with myself or with a partner, and I'm going to bring this tool into it and so you're already setting the stage for being focused and pushing away some of those distractions, whether it's work or children or, or pain or, you know, PTSD from trauma and stuff like that. So all of those factors kind of hone in on being here now and focused on that sensation. It also um, brings me around to another point that I think is important to make, which is that particularly for people for whom cannabis is kind of a new idea, a new, a new approach, bringing it into a partnered experience may be the end goal, but it's not a great place to start. Um, obviously, when you're with a partner, there's a lot more going on. There's distractions. There's what is he or she, or they thinking and feeling and all of those sorts of things. So that my best recommendation is that before you go there, you spend some time by yourself, right? And so you set some, some time aside, you set the mood just like you would expect. You make sure that there are no demands and, extra, uh, and distractions. So like, you know, the kids are with grandma or something like that. Um, and, and then you use the cannabis, you figure out the dose. Again, that's easier with inhalation than it is with something edible. And then you masturbate and you figure out what is it doing for me? What does it feel like? How do I feel about using it? You know, all of those things I think are important to sort of have a handle on before you get into, you know, what does my partner think of this? Or what does my partner feel when they're using it? And how does this get in? to bring us together or maybe stand between us in the bedroom. So I think that, you know, there are just layers to this onion. And if we want to be most successful, it's best to kind of peel them back one at a time in a, in a controlled environment. I think that's such an important recommendation for people to kind of explore that if this is something that works for them, how does it impact their bodies? I think all of these are very, very kind of a time subjective experience, like any other medication. Then you're, when you're taking my experience of when I'm taking painkiller might be different than my friend or my partner. So I think it's important to explore that. Well, one thing that I'm curious about is what do you think about CBD oils? I feel like now, in, especially in California, they're in everything and like in lubes and bath bombs like are, do they kind of deliver what they promise in a word no <laughs> <laughs> sorry um you know i think that there's uh one of the problems that that faces us in the cannabis world is difficulty acknowledging and coming to grips with the placebo effect right so there are a lot of people out there who, you know, suck down a little tincture of CBD or they throw a CBD bath bomb in the in the water and they feel good. And the assumption, therefore, is that that the, the CBD did something. 
And on the one hand, if they feel good, I'm not really arguing with that. But when we get into products that you know make claims and, and for which you're parting with your hard-earned cash, or maybe even more so where we have somebody who you know has a real ongoing sexual problem, right? There's trauma there. That That's kind of a different situation to me. I think that that needs to be taken more seriously and it needs to be met with something that has some truth behind it. So, you know, in some ways, I kind of think of this as there's kind of the recreational world, which is like all for yucks. And I think that's fine, you know. And then there's the medical world where we really expect and need and want a particular outcome. And therefore, it's more important that those products be proven and live up to their to their hype. Unfortunately, CBD is kind of a funky stuff. There's there's definitely a lot of data there, but you know the, the evidence for using CBD, for, for example, in seizure disorders and children with these rare genetic seizure disorders, I think that's solid. But when you get into CBD for pain and anxiety and sleep, those studies are, are not very well done, and mostly they're done in rats, and we're not rats. It actually made me go and look up how, what percentage of medicines that work for rats fail in human beings. It turns out it's 92%. Oh, no. (laughs) It makes you wonder, like, why why are we using rats at all? And the answer is because we can, you know, they're there and, and they don't have a long life cycle. And so they make a good experimental model from a logistical point of view. But from a translational point of view, like, you know, okay, if it works in a rat, is it going to work in a person? The answer is it's terrible, right? There's... The thing that's also interesting is even if you look from the kids to the rats to the few human studies, CBD needs an astounding dose, a really high dose, hundreds of milligrams. So if you go down to your Whole Foods or the local gas station and you buy a little bottle of some sort of tincture, likely in that entire bottle is one dose worth or maybe not even one dose worth. And you just spent 100 bucks or 150 bucks on that little bottle. So you can see that, you know, from a practicality point of view, we're nowhere near it. I think that the story on CBD has yet to be finely written. I think we need more research. And if we can really show some of these benefits that actually happen in human beings and then push this through, you know, the FDA process, then I think we'll get it covered by insurance like other medications. And then it may be actually available in the appropriate doses to be used in appropriate fashion. But when it comes to sort of CBD in a bath bomb, you might as well just get a bath bomb. It's probably a lot cheaper. And if we want to use cannabis to enhance our experience sexually, or even just of being in the bath with a bath bomb, then I think inhalation of vaporized flour is the way to do it because it's effective. Well, Dr. Tischler, I think you brought up such a wonderful point when you talked about the kind of struggle that it brings when it's not working. I think I, similar to you, if it's something works for you and it's not, you don't experience any harmful effect, by all means, feel free to incorporate it. But right. sometimes I hear from people that they've still kind of, you know, I tried everything and it's not working. And people oftentimes they're not comfortable going to their physician or psychologist to talk about their sexual challenges. And everything would be like, I took a couple drops of CBD. I tried this other not clinically proven way and therefore I'm broken. Therefore I, I'm not be able to sexual, to be sexual. That's, that's the part that's really, you know, heartbreaking and pernicious, right? Is the idea that, well, I tried all these things that everyone says is wonderful and it didn't work for me. Therefore it's my fault. I'm like, wait a sec. You know, that is not a reasonable conclusion. 
And, and it really stems from that placebo effect that there are all these people out there who are saying, isn't that wonderful? You know, so if you're not getting wonderful, then the defect is with you. But it may actually be that they're they're just doing great, you know, and that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. And then, you know, I hate to say this, but it's also important to remember that because CBD and other sorts of things like that are now legally sellable, there's a lot of industry around this, not just in the manufacturing and selling, but in the writing articles about, et cetera. So there are a lot of people out there who are making their living saying, isn't CBD the best thing since sliced bread without realizing that in fact, they're creating in their own kind of stigma for patients for whom it doesn't work and then they feel broken. Mm -hmm. And I think that's problematic. Well, I bet many people, many of our listeners right now, they're curious about if they want to explore pursuing getting medical cannabis to address their sexual dysfunctions, what would be a way to pursue that? Well, I think there are sort of good ways and bad ways. And I would say the bad way is go down to the local store and ask the bud tender what you know he or she thinks, you know, partially because they don't have a lot of perspective on the medical and psychological side of things, but also in part because they have all these things they want to sell. So there's a lot of mythology about this strain or that strain. And by the way, strains, I think, are completely irrelevant dosing and delivery method are much more important. But, you know, instead of that approach, I would say, you know, talk to your doctor, talk to your psychologist if you have one. There's a high likelihood that they're going to say, you know, I really don't know that much about that. And that's okay because their perspective is based on what they know. But what we hope for is that they can turn around and point you in the direction of somebody who can help you, somebody like myself, for example. And to that end, first of all, let me say in, in, in you know, along the lines of self-promotion, I'm happy to see people remotely all across the country and, of course, across the world. So if any of your listeners would like to, you know, have an appointment and and uh, get that kind of care, then absolutely. And what they should do is go to my website, which is inhalemd.com, because that's right. First of all, there are a ton of articles there that people can read and it's a good toe in the water. But then on top of that, there's a really good way to reach me. And then we can kind of talk about what makes sense for them. Similarly, some years ago, I started an organization called the Association of Cannabis Specialists, largely because people started saying, yeah, isn't that funny, Dr. Tischler? You seem to be the only doctor who's taking this seriously as a medicine. And I thought that was miserable. I mean, I didn't want to be the only one. I wanted, I want you know, this to be out there and available through lots of responsible and caring clinicians. So I started this, this group called the Association of Cannabis Specialists. And the idea is to rally physicians and other clinicians who want to really take care of patients and then also to make sure that we're all up to speed on on the information so everyone's playing from the same deck and of course we also now have an advocacy component which is to try and help the lawmakers of the world understand that there's a difference between medical and recreational and that patients have specific and particular needs that need to be met so that can be found on the web at cannabis-specialist.org that's a bit of a mouthful, so let me repeat it. It's 
cannabis-specialist.org. And, you know, again, you can reach me that way, but there is also a list of, of, of practitioners there. And if you can't find somebody in your neck of the woods, you can reach out through the website and we'll see if we can find somebody. Well, wonderful. I, I didn't know about the the organization. It's it's great that you cultivate this group of people that they are feeling passionate and they're informed about this topic because you're right that most of my colleagues and uh, even the physicians that I refer to, I don't feel like they, they have the adequate information yet. So it's good that you're doing advocacy through that group and also providing that information. You know, I think about the cannabis medicine now kind of like endocrinology a hundred and something years ago. Turn of the 20th century, endocrinology was just coming into understanding and people were using ground up beef pancreas and stuff like that. We've come a long way from there, but there was a time when this stuff was known and understood by a select group of clinicians and researchers but it just hadn't percolated out yet. And I think that's really where we are here at this point is that we're accumulating more information that's helping us do this better and better. And also we need to make sure that this information gets out to all of these clinicians so that they understand that it's legitimate, that it's backed by science, and that there are certain times when it's useful and quite frankly, certain times where it's not useful. In fact, the just before we got on together, I saw a patient where frankly, I said to her, look, you know what? Cannabis poses more risk to you than I think it's worth. And I also said to her, look, you're the only one who can decide what how you feel about risk in the end. But here's what we know. And here's, you know, the situation you're in that makes this risky for you. Why don't you mull this over for a week or so? And then let's reconvene and see how you're feeling about it. And like every medicine, and I mean every medicine, there's no free lunch. Everything comes with risk. Everything comes with side effect. It happens that cannabis, those things are much lower, you know, in terms of risk and side effect, but it isn't zero. And it is higher in certain people with certain problems than in other people. And that's, I think, you know, the kind of information that needs to get out to my colleagues. And frankly, it needs to get out into the regular world because then we can have people stop saying things like, yeah, man, just go light up a, you know, a joint and you'll be fine. Because that might not be true. Right. And I think the other piece is that it's important, as you said, to get this from a physician or someone that's informed because if you're getting it from dispensary, the person might not know what are some of the risk factors for your particular situation. So then exactly. therefore, maybe that's not advisable. So I think you're right that whether if coming to you or a group like the one that you recommend, that could be the good starting point for people. Absolutely. You know, I think that the bud tenders are actually in a very tight position, you know, I mean, in some ways, they're being asked to give advice on things that they don't know much about and puts them in a very awkward position where they're kind of hanging their tush out over the line. There are all kinds of political reasons why how we got where we are. But I think that in general, moving forward, it would be better for all involved, the patients, the clinicians and the bud tenders, if we could respect what what they know and what they don't know. You know, and if a bud tender really wants to be in a position to guide patients, then I'm all for they're going to medical school. I mean, that's the place where you learn all of the basic information that then the cannabis information plays into. 
And, uh, you know, the truth is I, I talk to a lot of bud tenders and some of them have actually chosen to go to medical school. And I think that's awesome. Well, wonderful. So I leave a link to the website, both of the websites that you mentioned in the show notes. So if people didn't get a chance to write it down, they can find it there. Is there any other thing that you want kind of lasting thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? I know. I think we've really done a great job of covering the territory today. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, I would just say, look, if anybody who's listening wants to talk to me, I'm all for it. Again, my website, inhalemd.com is the place to start. You know, you get a little bit more of a flavor of who I am and whether we work well together. And then it's very easy to reach me through the website. So that would be my recommendation. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for your time. This was a very insightful conversation. And thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. This was great fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciated that Dr. Tischler talked about the best practices when it comes to using cannabis for sexual enhancement, because I feel there are tons of myths out there about the pros and cons and different strands. At the end, I also wanted to invite you guys to consider signing up for the founding membership that I mentioned. What I'm very excited about this, I want to make sure I'm getting the feedback of my listeners about what they will find useful in the course because I I can talk about helping people kind of like spice up their relationship and reconnect and rekindling passion in the relationship for weeks and weeks. But I want to make sure that I'm I'm choosing the things that are relevant for more people. So if you sign up now, you get a discount and we, we, we can coordinate together about the content. The link will be in the show notes and I will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.